For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he also called, who he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. Well done, Hannah. So, just get situated here. So, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean that we look at life and we look at circumstances and we look at things like hardship and suffering and things that are really hard to give an answer for? And in the midst of that, we have to, and we can't help but acknowledge our own weakness and our own suffering because these are circumstances that are so far out of our control and so much bigger than us. And speaking of this disconnect, we begin to see this disconnect in the Bible, right? And we've been talking about it in this series, The Way. We see brothers killing brothers out of jealousy. We see the oppression of God's people under a tyrant king named Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. And we see something that's called death. Death that entered the world when Adam and Eve disobeyed the command to not eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? In this, death is so oppressive and so out of our control and beyond our domain of what we have influence over that it is like a slave master, which we can't do anything about, it seems, And what do we do about this disconnect? When we look at life and we go, like this groan, like this isn't how life is supposed to be. And people have wrestled with this question for centuries and many Christians and brilliant thinkers 
you know, lots of people have attempted to say, like, what do we do about life when we suffer? Do we just pretend it's not there? Or do we run from it? Or do we come up with some oversimplified ease, some oversimplified answer like, Jesus, and then throw like a Jesus aspirin at you? Right? Well, let's, let's begin to have a conversation about this, okay? There's something, there's a word in the Greek language called splankna. Ever heard of that? Don't know. Splankna, right? And splankna means like the essence of a person. It's where life, the life of a person is held. And today, like whenever we find the word splankna in Greek, we tend to translate it as heart. Like, I love you with all my heart. It means I love you with all of everything that's in me, right? Or in Philippians 1.8, there's an example. Paul says to the Philippians, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with the affection. That's the word splankna. They translated it affection. The affection of Christ Jesus. Splankna, which we will is all over the New Testament and which was prevalent in the minds of the ancient people. They they meant by it the heart of life. But what it literally translates into the into is ready for this. The bells. So when I say I love you with all of my splankna saying, I love you with all of my bowels. When Paul says to the Philippians, I love you with the affection of Christ Jesus, he goes, I love you with the bowels of Christ Jesus. <laughs> right? They don't make a Hallmark card for that. Yeah. Like, if you found, if Hallmark existed in first century Greece, and we could pull up a Hallmark card from then, there would be, like, speaking of Mother's Day, there would be a Mother's Day card from a son, uh, from a, a son to a mother, and it would say, Dear Mom, I love you with all my splankna. I love you with all my bowels, my inward stuff. So what ancient societies thought was that the bowels were the heart of a person. They were the center of that person's being. This is where life was held. And there was a way that you could know things with your splankna. You could know things with your bowels. And we think, okay, post-enlightenment, post-rationality, post-like the rise of science and science being the answer for everything, we think that you just know stuff with your brain. You just know stuff with your head and with rationality and with logic. And that's the only way that you can know something. Can you pass the test on it? A true false test, a multiple choice test. Can you wrap your mind around it? But this is a relatively new idea in history. In fact, throughout history, people have known that there are other ways to know things besides just your brain. In fact, Paul would have said, 
You can know things with your splankna. You can know things from a deep place, so deep within you that it is the center of your being. And speaking of this, I think of like a school of fish, right? And a school of fish, there's thousands of fish and they usually swim in like they're, they're kind of in these swirling balls of fishiness and you watch them on the discovery channel in there floating around the ocean and they're moving in a direction sometimes they're going in a sphere thing and sometimes they're moving in a direction and they're going together and you look at that school of fish and you go well who's the leader of that school of fish and you just you don't you don't know you can't point someone or some fish out, right? But here's what's going on with those fish. They have identified that there is a way for those fish to know what is going to happen with the group, like as it happens on the spot, not you see it and you assess and you decide, okay, we're going right now. It's not like the person who is the lead, the fish who is the leader, looks back and goes, hey guys, can go right? And they're like, okay, man. Right? Somebody goes right. And those fish, like in their spinal cord, like almost before it happens, those fish know we're going right. And if you watch this happen over time, you'll see this school of fish continually moving as one continually being one with each other nobody's being vocal nobody's deciding nobody's a decided leader but they know where each other is going and also i think of michael jordan have you guys ever watched old michael jordan footage right tim of course you have there's this scene, not a scene, there's this game where Michael Jordan is playing against the Lakers, right? And this is a really important game. And Michael Jordan is a right-handed player. And he's going up like he usually does with his right hand to make a layup. And it seems like if you're just watching the frame that the camera was able to capture, he starts taking the ball down out of his right hand, and you're like, Michael, that's the wrong direction. The hoop is upwards. And you don't understand what's going on because you're analyzing this with your brain. But there was something, I tell you, that Michael Jordan knew in his splankna that he knew intuitively, that he knew without anybody telling him that this guy from the Lakers was coming over to block the shot. And before the guy, before Michael Jordan even had a moment to look at this guy and say, oh, I must react to this. It seems like as this guy was about to jump off the ground, Michael Jordan was already bringing the ball down because he already knew that that guy was going to block it. And that guy jumps up and that guy comes down and somehow Michael Jordan is still in the air. And what you see him do is he switches the ball to his left hand. And this is, it's always better in slow motion. 
And when you see in slow motion, you see like the sheer magnificence of it. And you see his gracefulness that everybody always spoke of. And you see how he could literally seemingly fly and it didn't make any sense. And how he was so in tune with what was going on on the court around him that before that guy took off the ground, he was already switching hands over to his left hand. And as that guy goes up and comes down and Michael Jordan's still like hanging out in the air like, hey, how you doing? He flicks the ball up with his left hand and it goes in. And you're like, wow, that is brilliant. How on earth do you do that? Right? Well, that brings us to Romans 8. All right? So, Romans is Paul's longest letter. And Romans is what many consider Paul's magnum opus. Right? That's a Latin term that means his biggest, most majestic, grandest work of theology. So, Romans, his magnum opus. And it lays out from... For 16 chapters, like this is what there is to know about the gospel. And in the center of that book is chapter 8. And people consider this the pinnacle chapter of his magnum opus work. Right? And then in that chapter, there is a verse. And it's almost like the center of the letter. And it's verse 28. Have you guys ever heard Romans 8, 28 quoted? Probably all the time, right? We remember what it says, right? For God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Right? So this verse, 28, is like the penultimate verse of the pinnacle chapter of the magnum opus work of Paul's theology. This is what you got to know. About what's going on in this world. What's going on with humanity. What's going on with Jesus. What is God doing? And what that verse tells us is that God is working. He is active. He is doing something. And it saddens me that this verse is sometimes or far too often reduced in the huge significance of acknowledging that God is working in the world to do something and to put things back together. It's like this big. And people reduce it down to like this little Jesus aspirin. Something's wrong in your life? Romans 8.28. Right? Like you stub your toe? Romans 8.28. Right? I had a grandpa who believed, honestly, that you could... Fix any ailment with aspirin. Runny nose? Take an aspirin. Got a headache? Take an aspirin. Broke your arm? Take an aspirin, right? And people will act this way about Romans 8.28. Anything goes wrong in your life, right? Like you have to wait in line at the DMV. Like you stub your toe. Like your little brother is being a twerp. And they throw this Jesus aspirin at you like... Hit you in the forehead and come on, God works all things together for good. I mean, you're calling coin to his purpose, right? And is that what that verse is talking about? Is this verse a little Jesus aspirin to throw at people and say, eh, don't worry about it. Eh, 
not a big deal. Is this verse a reason to stop caring about what goes on in life? And I don't think so. Here's why I don't think so. Because in this pinnacle chapter, Romans 8, there's a word that Paul uses three times. Three times. In a chapter that we would think would be like such this uplifting chapter like, oh, anything goes wrong in life, Romans 8, 28. Paul uses the words suffering and three times he uses the word groaning or some form of the word groaning. What is up with this groaning? What's this all about? Like in a happy chapter, are we supposed to be talking about suffering and groaning? Verse 22, he first says that all of creation groans like it's in the pains of childbirth. A question. Where is a child held by a mother? In your splankna. So in this deep part of the earth, as if the earth is pregnant with a child and it's experiencing the pains of childbirth, in its splanknod, the very creation is groaning and waiting for Jesus to come and do what Jesus does. Creation is longing for Jesus. The very next verse, verse 23, it says humanity is groaning for Jesus. It says that we groan, awaiting the adoption of sonship and the redemption of our bodies. We're waiting for adoption and redemption, stuff that happens in Jesus. Creation is groaning. We're groaning, awaiting Jesus. And not only that, verse 26 says that the Spirit groans. The Holy Spirit groans. It says that sometimes we are experiencing life and we don't even know how to pray. So the Spirit intercedes on our behalf with groans that are too deep for words. Crazy, right? What's all this groaning about? Why is creation and humanity and the Spirit groaning? It's because as we experience life and there's ups and downs and there's joyous points and there's trialsome, hardship, suffering points. When we experience those low points, that suffering, something in us says we're made for more and this is not the way that life is supposed to be. And we know it's on such a deep level, it's like we know it on like a molecular level. All of us knows this is not how life is supposed to be. Not just our rational part of us, not just our brain, but in our splankna. We know 
that this isn't how life is supposed to be. It's not supposed to feel broken. I'm not supposed to feel suffering. And a deep, 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 deep part of us goes, ah, like a groan. Like a groan too deep for words. And says, ah. And what that means is, I am suffering, but God, you promised more than this. Does that make sense? And something awesome that I want to pull out of this is when it says in verse 26 that we don't even know what to pray, so earth is groaning, we're suffering, so we're groaning, and we're like, I don't have words. I don't even know the words to pray. When we don't know the words to pray, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf and praying for us with groans. What does it mean that the Holy Spirit is groaning? Why would God groan? Because as we suffer... And as this creation suffers, he is a God that does not fold his arms and turn his eyes and go, well, deal with it. Well, get over it. Well, toughen up. He is a God who suffers with us. He is a God who groans with us. He is a God that when we hurt and when we groan, he groans too because our hurting affects him. When we hurt, he hurts. He's not some angry guy in the sky saying, get over it, you baby. He's a God that in the midst of our suffering says, I know what that's like. When it feels like the whole world doesn't know what that's like. When it feels like the whole world doesn't understand you. I know what that's like. He groans with us. Now, that brings us to Jesus. God works. Active word. Works. He's doing something works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Let's read what 829 says because people say 828 all the time and they overlook 829, the verse right after it. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. When it says that humanity is groaning for adoption into sonship, in the deepest parts of us, in our splankna, We're groaning for everything to be right in the world. And we're groaning to be like Jesus. We're groaning for things to be made right in the world. Creation groans. We groan. The Spirit groans with us. 
and look at this whole thing and we say, well, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be weak? What does it mean to experience suffering and hardship? And how do we not deny it, but actually acknowledge it? I think this is how we do that. We groan. We groan in a way that in the deepest part of us, we feel the suffering. We don't run from it. We don't hide from it. We don't push it onto others. We feel the suffering, and that's why we groan. To be human is to groan. And we groan in such a way that it's not like an, oh, poor me, pity party. But it's to groan in such a way that says, there is a future glory in this suffering that I'm feeling right now. It doesn't feel like that future glory. This isn't how life is supposed to be. Right? So we're this humanity that feels groaning, but we don't just stay there. We're groaning with hope. We feel the suffering, but we groan with hope. Hope means there's something more out there just a little bit further. And if I can just hold on and if I can just have faith and if I can just keep praying... If you think you're alone in the groaning, you're not. We're all groaning. Creation's groaning. I'm groaning. I'm sure you're groaning. Your parents are groaning. Our families are groaning. Some people act like they're not groaning. That's not true, though. But when we can be humans together and when we can groan together and when we can sympathize with one another and when we can encourage each other in the faith and when we can point to a glorious future and say, God made us in creation and himself. All of this is supposed to share in glory. Then when we experience suffering, we don't stay there. We groan, but we groan with hope. Did anybody here go to the Future of Forestry concert? One, two, yeah. It's a fantastic concert. And if you ever get the chance, see Future of Forestry. And when we went, like, it was around Christmas, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. What? It was. It was. Yeah, because it was the Advent concert. Meaning it was Christmas songs. Um... When we went and we drew, uh, when we drove out to Arizona, that was my second time seeing Future of Forestry Advent concert. The last time I saw it was the Christmas before when they came to my church and they were visiting. And I was at that point experiencing a place of groaning in my life. Things just didn't seem to be going my way. I had lots and lots of homework. I was doing an internship. Uh, and I just felt the weight of life. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't any severe hardship or anything, but... Like, my splank now was going... Uh. <laughs> 
and somebody, my friend Donovan, asked me to go to the Future of Forestry Advent concert that night. And I'm like, oh, man, I got so much homework to do. And then I felt torn because I didn't want to let Donovan down. And he's, like, telling me how awesome it's going to be. And I'm like, oh, but homework. And I feel so split and torn. I was feeling the groaning. You know what I mean? But I decided... For whatever reason, maybe it was the Spirit's prompting, I decided to go to the Advent concert that night. And there was something at that concert that was so much bigger than my groaning. They sang, uh, they sang Christmas songs in a way that I had never experienced people sing Christmas songs. And something inside of me was like leaping to get out of my chest. Saying there's something important here. There's something powerful here. I don't know what it is. I can't put my finger on it. But this means something. And I remember they sang Joy to the World. And in the song, Joy to the World, which we all know and we've all heard a thousand times, I'm sure, I'd never heard Joy to the World be composed in this way before. They were singing the lyrics, and they got to this point in the song where it was just instrumental. And they stopped the the words. And it's just like a keyboard and drums and an electric guitar playing the music of joy to the world and like the music is kind of rising and as it's rising something in me is kind of rising and it wasn't just me like the whole entire room felt it we were being connected by this worship and I remember when all of a sudden in that instrumental part a violin starts playing the melody of the song and when the violin starts playing I swear in that chapel every hand went up like a hand of worship every heart and every splankna knew There was something big going on. There was something special. It was tangible. You could feel it. And I remember standing in the back during that song, and I was like pressed up against the wall. No joke. I was pressed up against the wall by the force of this music and by the fact that I was taking part in something so much bigger than myself. And all these hands are raised up because all of a sudden this violin struck a chord that every human heart was singing. Every human heart is groaning. And when with a violin, that musician sang joy to the world without even words, every heart sang with that violin. Every splankna sang with that violin. 
and that's the type of thing I think we're looking at when we talk about Romans 8 28 it's not some Jesus aspirin to throw at the little things of life it's this huge thing that when we look at the world and we see creation hurting and we see humans hurting and we see poverty and we see injustice and we see girls being sold into sex slavery and we see kids not getting enough food and their bellies being distended because they just can't care for themselves because they're so young and their parents can't care for them because they're just a burden when we see the injustice and the groaning of the world and we read something that Paul says like God works all things together for good then I think we understand all of a sudden one day Jesus is going to be like that violin that when he starts playing his melody every hand raises in worship and says this is what we've been waiting for this is what creation is waiting for and humanity is waiting for even the people that we don't like And in that moment, all the threads of human history and all the threads of everybody's life and families and circumstances and kingdoms and political system and economies and philosophies and everything are going to converge and come together and become in harmony. And we're all going to be singing the song that Jesus is king and he's working things together for good and he's putting this world back together and Jesus is the way that God puts the world back together have you ever been on a road trip have you ever maybe been sitting on a bench seat in a van on a road trip or just imagine that you were, if you haven't. And you're sitting in this van or this vehicle and you're surrounded by like half-eaten snacks and you're listening to this same playlist for like the tenth time in the row in these songs that you used to like, you don't like anymore. And your little brother is over there and he's just tapped into this resource that I don't think even he knew that he had of annoyingness and he is unleashing that on you you're so privileged and when you're in this road trip there's like you can't put your finger on it but you're like itchy you're like angsty you're like filled with this stuff in your bowels I don't mean in a weird way. Like, <laughs> I'm not talking about like a rumbling and the tumbling, you know. You're filled with this feeling in your splankna. And you just want to like let out a groan. You're like, uh, are we there yet? 
and kind of the whole car of people feel it too. And everybody in the vehicle can relate. And you don't even have to say anything. You're like this school of fish that is united by your groaning. Oh, are we there yet? Sitting there on this bench of death, surrounded by this strap that is supposed to save your life, but it feels like it's slowly ending your life. And your little brother pipes up, and he's like, "Uh, are we there yet? And you look at him, and you're like, dude, you don't even know how to tie your shoes. But you know that we're supposed to be somewhere, somewhere and we're not there yet. That's what it is. That's what this groaning is. We're like little kids who don't even know how to tie our shoes. But we're sitting in the back of a van held down by a strap of death that's supposed to be a strap of life going, ah, and groaning. And everybody else is on the same page. And we're groaning from this low-level suffering that we're experiencing. And we know that we're supposed to go somewhere and be somewhere and do something. But when I look at life, I'm not there yet. And it hasn't happened That's what we're like. Held down by the seatbelt of suffering. But knowing that we're supposed to be reaching a destination called future glory. We know we're made for more. We know we're headed somewhere. And even if we don't know it up here in our brains with our rational minds, and even if we don't know how to tie our shoes, we know in our bowels, in our splankna, in the deepest parts of who we are, this isn't how life is supposed to be. And when we feel that, we're being so human. And that's okay. But we look at this life and we're filled with hope that in that time when we feel the deepest groaning, we hope and we pray and we have faith and we cling to the promise and we wrestle with life like Jacob wrestled with that man all through the night. And we create beauty out of that and we create meaning out of that and we create significance out of that and we grow in compassion for others out of that and we sympathize with people even when we hurt because when we act that way we're testifying to the fact with or without words that we're made for something more and Jesus is coming to put the world back together
Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and that you love us. That you don't leave us or forsaken us. You don't abandon us. You don't leave us sitting in the back of that vehicle strapped in by suffering. And God, help us through the times of groaning. And remind us that you're working all things together for our good. And you're restoring creation and you're restoring humanity and you're giving us new bodies. And you're a spirit who is not far off, but you're here and you're with us. And you groan when we groan. And it's through you that this entire universe is put back together the way it's supposed to be. In Jesus' name, amen.